0: Welcome back to The Swamp, my friends. Today's video is going to be an extra long compilation full of horror stories you normally wouldn't hear here in The Swamp. If you like stories like these, you can find more of them on my second channel, Swamped. You can find a link in the top of the description, or if you go to my channel page and look on the suggested channels, the first one you'll see is my second channel. Be sure to like and subscribe. As always, if you have stories that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit your stories at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I would love to share your stories with everyone here in the swamp. Now, without further ado, let's get into these creepy and allegedly true disturbing horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. When I was 15 years old, I was part of my school's committee to attend the teacher's conference where grades would be discussed and we would judge whether they were grading their students fairly. But that also meant that on this summer day, I had to stay longer in school. We finished around five and I waited outside for my mother to pick me up. As I said, it was summer, so I was wearing a shirt and shorts with tights underneath looking like a regular kid and in no way appealing. Staring at my phone, I barely paid attention to my surroundings and even less to the construction workers throwing glances at me from across the street. That is, at least until one of them called me over. Hey, you want to help us out over here? I was both bewildered and amused, shaking my head awkwardly. Uh, no, sorry. Now at that age, I wasn't overly paranoid as I am now, but it still felt off having those grown men. They looked like they were at least in their 30s talking to me. My mom texted me, saying she was going to be a little late. Great. I don't remember much of our conversation. At one point, they asked where I was from, and when I replied, Russia, they tried to speak to me in broken Russian, and curses everybody knows. I laughed a little, thinking that maybe they were just bored or trying to postpone their work and I was the only distraction in their vicinity. One of them asked, Hey, why are you standing in front of that school anyway? Are you picking somebody up? No, I'm just waiting for my mother. Realization was plastered all over their faces to ease me out of my initial discomfort. How old are you? Fifteen. Oh god, pretend we never talked to you. (laughs) Chuckling to myself, I was about to text my friends about what funny interaction I had just had when suddenly I heard something that would never leave my memory. Damn, I thought we could coax her into an orgy. Who says we can By the grace of all that is holy, that is the moment my mother decided to appear. I jumped into her car, telling her to drive. Confused, she started the car, but not without waving at these men. Because these men also helped us pave the path to our garden, I was shocked and disgusted and told my mother what had happened. I don't remember how she reacted. I know that I never reported them to my school, and they continued working there for months. And they kept on recognizing me too, whistling when I would wear a dress or even following me to the bus station while drunk. After they finished, I never saw them again, and I'm glad, and I hope it stays that way. A few years back, I worked the night shift at a hotel as a house aide, just cleaning up the property, delivering items to rooms, etc. One night, the hotel was undergoing renovations in the lobby, so a construction crew stayed with us. They stopped working around 5 to 6 o'clock, but the front desk worker and I would see them all night. One worker gave off a super creepy vibe but I was always polite because I wouldn't say I like to judge. In the winter, business was slow, so one night around one o'clock, I was chatting with my coworker in the makeshift lobby, one of our meeting rooms, when the construction worker came in and acted like he was interested in grabbing some snacks. He hung around for five or 10 minutes, talking her up and down, and she kept shooting these glances at me, practically begging me to not leave her alone with this guy. I thought she was overreacting, but I never left and made up some story about needing her help with something. The guy finally goes back to his room and she breathes a sigh of relief. She told me this guy had been hitting on her for days relentlessly. She turned him down politely, but he just won't let up, and he always gave her the feeling that they shouldn't be alone together. Again, I thought she might be overreacting, but I had not spoken with him about it at this point, so I couldn't say anything about it. three o'clock rolls around and I decide to do my nightly sweep of the floors. In the winter, business was always slow, so the process was quick. As I'm rounding a corner, who do I run into but the creeper and the co-worker of his? I smile and say, hello, and go to be on my way. As I'm walking away, I hear the creeper say to his co-worker, don't touch her, I'm going to be the one getting into her pants. I was alarmed, but I played it off, thinking they had been talking about someone else before I ran into them. Every night after that, I received a call to deliver an item to the creeper's room, and every time I arrived, he would come outside the door and close it behind him. He would always look at me dead and give me that smile that made my stomach churn. I would quickly give him his items, wish him a good night, and hurry away as fast as I could, trying not to give off the impression I was scared. For three long weeks I did my best to avoid running into him at night. Some nights I was lucky and never came about, at least that I know of, but other nights I would run into him in the halls, which terrified me. Like I said, in the winter business was slow, so we didn't have much more than five or six to guest combined for three or four floors. I always ensured my radio was in plain sight, which was brilliant because I saw him eye it a few times. Finally, the construction was finished, and I was relieved to hear that they would be going and I wouldn't have to see him anymore, but not without seeing him one last time. I visited the hotel one early morning to pick up my check, and as I left, he was in the parking lot. I gave him a strained smile and attempted to walk past him, but he stopped me to tell me, sorry if I scared you, and flashed me that disgusting smile. The fact that he laughed as I hurried off to my car negated his apology. About seven years ago, I was stuck at home for the summer. I was around 13 or 14 years old, so I couldn't drive anywhere. My dad had recently gotten remarried and decided to put an addition onto our house. It would be the main bedroom slash bath over a two-car garage. They had started all of this the previous fall, and during the summer, construction really picked up, and the basic structure of the room was set up. Now, I was home every single day, mainly on the computer. I met the general contractor and knew his face along with a few other regular construction guys. However, many guys were coming in and out, so keeping track of all of them was hard. One day, an older man drives up in a van and gets out. He knocks on our front door and I answer it. He has a clipboard in hand and mentions he's here to inspect the newly installed electrical box or something to that effect. I let him inside and he walked towards the addition and began to walk around a bit. I wasn't paying much attention and returned to our computer across from the branch. Around 10 minutes later, he tells me everything is set and leaves. The rest of the day passes uneventfully. When my parents came home later that night after work, I informed them of the guy who went for the inspection. Both get confused looks and insist that no one was scheduled to inspect the addition that day. They even called the contractor to double-check, who tells them that no one on his crew was working that day either. My parents were pretty freaked out and asked me questions about the man, but I couldn't tell them much. The contractor also asked me about the man and was just as confused about why he was at our house. My parents insisted that I couldn't stay home by myself anymore while the addition was rising, and forced me to get a job. I started working at a marina where my brother also worked. Today, we do not know what that guy was doing there. Looking back, I feel fortunate that nothing terrible happened because there could have been a ton of terrible things going down and nobody there to help me. One sunny, warm day about a year and a half ago, I was hanging out at this little park. The park was in the center of our small, historic township on Main Street. The park had a small playground with a swing set and a mini jungle gym with a slide. There were also public restrooms and old brick jailhouse for two people from the day, plus a large pavilion with a couple of metal benches. The gazebo is located right in the center of the park, where I was sitting while embroidering. Next to the park, separated by a small road that led to the park's parking lot, there was a historic two-story building. Outside the back of the building was a massive deconstruction and cleanup project that was underway. I could see what was going on from my position on the gazebo's steps where I was sitting. On the first day of the cleanup process, I noticed that the only dude left working there for the day seemed to keep staring over at me. At the time, I didn't think much of it. However, the next day, I also noticed the same dude seeming to stare over at me occasionally. As he was finishing up for the day, a friend I was talking to at the gazebo decided to head over and ask the dude what was going on over there. As a result, the dude eventually worked his way over to the pavilion with my friend. They talked for a while but the dude lingered behind me for several minutes before my friend told him to leave. Our conversation was bare, just idle chit-chat. You know, polite but distant sort of stuff, like stuff about the recent weather, nothing profound. As we talked, he noticed that I smoked when I opened up my sewing box. Politely apologizing, he asked if I could smoke a little with him, so he didn't have to get up and walk to his car to grab some of his. I knew he was tired after a long day's work, so I understood somewhat. But unfortunately, I told him I was out myself at the moment, so he suggested we both take the walk back to his car to smoke. Hesitantly, I decided to walk with him to his car, I know, dumb idea, but we were out in broad daylight in public after all. But when we got to his car, and he glanced inside, he realized he had forgotten his smoke wherever he was staying. He had his back turned to me though, which was a little weird. I noticed him suddenly looking around as if though he was looking for someone. I questioned this. He told me a long story about how there was a gang stalking him. He said it had been going on for a couple of years. This made me a little nervous as his whole demeanor had changed since telling me that story. So trying to change the subject, he suggested we go to where he was staying to smoke. He said it was only a few minutes away from the park. I declined politely, making up a lie about having a ride coming for me at any time, but he tried pressing me more about it, emphasizing that it was practically just down the street. He said it was lonely there, and it would be nice to have some company over. I politely refused his invitation once again, which seemed to frustrate him a little bit. As he was still trying to talk me into it, I noticed that he had been leaning against his car with one arm on it as if he were standing in front of me. I had my back to the car, but it really didn't start to bother me until he put his other hand on the other side of me, trapping me there. I ducked under his arm and stood a few inches away. Right after I moved away slightly, he got into the door panel of his open car door and pulled out a large hunting knife. He must have understood that he shocked me because the look on my face made him laugh a little bit and he explained that it was for any potential gang members that may have been watching at the time. I didn't quite know how to respond to that. At that moment, I started thinking about how I had a good friend who lived just on the other side of the park in a small apartment building, but I knew the dude would have easily watched me walk over there and would have potentially waited for me to come back out, so I started to make an excuse that I should be heading on right then, and he should go home and relax and smoke, and that I was sorry that I couldn't go with him. I didn't want to piss him off right then, but just as I was about to open my mouth to finish making my polite excuse, he stepped over in front of me and blocked me with his arms again. Come on, he pleaded with me. Just come back with me for just a little bit. We can hang outside and smoke. He reiterated once again that it was only a five minute drive. At that point, though, I was done making excuses to this dude. I had already made it clear I was not going anywhere with him. It was then that he pulled the knife from his pocket. Through gritted teeth, trying to mask his frustration, he said, look, I'm just a little lonely, is all. He leaned so close to my face that I could see his yellowing crooked teeth barely inches away. I won't be keeping you long. He hissed in my face. At that point, I started panicking internally. I froze not knowing what to say, but then, thank all sorts of goodness for another friend, who suddenly appeared, calling my name out, approaching us. What's up? He asked, walking up to his car. That seemed to do the trick. At this point, the duke put his arms down, turned away from me. Upon releasing me from his dominance, he started to introduce himself in a polite manner to my friend. His whole demeanor had suddenly gone back to normal. So as well as I could manage, I started a casual conversation with my friend, and we slowly began to walk away from that creepy dude. We left that scary situation behind. I never did see that dude again, thankfully. But I did avoid going back to that park, at least until the construction was over. There's something about construction workers, dude, I don't know. This story took place on December 31st, 2009. For a little backstory, I grew up in South Florida and moved to Southern California in 2009 because I loved two things more than anything, weed and skimboarding, and it was the mecca for both. So I spent a few months growing weed and skimming the best ways of my life. After I grew the weed, I packed up and drove back to Florida to sell it and show it off. At the time, having purple weed in Florida was a big deal. A side story to this is that I got pulled over in Blythe, California, middle of nowhere on my drive back. And, by some miracle, the cops didn't search the duffel bags in my trunk. So I considered myself the luckiest guy on earth. Boy, was I wrong on that. I returned to my apartment complex a couple of days before New Year's Eve and was excited to show off the weed to my friends. Now, I sold weed. I was never a kingpin of any sort. But the people knew they would get weed from me anytime they wanted. They would come out, hang out, and just have good vibes. So now to the night in question. It started like any other, a couple of friends over, my girlfriend at the time, it was going great. My friends all wanted to go out to a New Year's Eve party a buddy was having. Looking back, I always thought, what if I just went? I guess I'll never know. So all of my buddies left, my girlfriend was tired, so she also went home. So before I went to bed, I ran across the street to get a Nestle strawberry milk, one of my favorites. After I got the milk, I walked into my garage to return to my apartment. As I reached for the doorknob, I heard heavy footsteps. I went to turn around and was grabbed by my shirt and thrown against a wall. I hit my head, not very hard, and I figured it was my buddies who had forgotten something. I turned my head to look, and I was hit with the butt of a gun. The next thing I knew, and the next thing I saw, as best as I can describe, were black blotches and shiny circles as I was dragged upstairs. At this point, I never fully turned around, so I didn't know who or how many people were there or what was actually happening. I heard one guy's voice saying, Where's the weed? Now I'm not trying to get shot over some weed. I had my hands up and calmly told them, It's over there, you can have all of it. Just calm down. As I escorted them to my bedroom, I pointed out the duffel bags, which contained everything I had brought over. After they grabbed them, they asked where the money was. As I said, I sold weed, but it was basically to smoke for free and have some extra cash. I did have a couple grand in my closet and my sweatshirt, but I wasn't ready to give that up. I told them I had no cash and the weed was all I had. That's when the gun left my head. The next thing I heard terrified me. I listened to the gun being cocked and placed back to my head. I immediately told them where it was. They grabbed it and I heard footsteps running away from my bedroom and the door slamming. I panicked and ran downstairs, closed my garage door, and ran back upstairs. I stood in my kitchen, just staring off. I mean, what the hell should I do now, I thought. Do I call my girlfriend? Do I call the cops? Well, I guess I can't reach the cops. I instantly thought my mind was racing. As I went to call my girlfriend, I heard glass shattering. My front door had been locked since we came through the garage. When you enter the front door, there are stairs leading up to my apartment. I looked down and saw a hand reaching in unlocking the door. They were back. I ran back to the kitchen and put my hands up, my heart pounding. Why were they back? The first guy didn't even look at me. He just ran past me into my room. The second appeared and pointed the gun at me. I made direct eye contact with the guy pointing the gun at me, and as I looked at him, I realized I knew him. At that exact moment, I could tell exactly who this was by the look on his face. He turned visibly white. My dad was a teacher and a damn good one at that, and was well known in my community, and growing up, he would have parties and fun activities for his classes, and this guy was one of his former students standing in front of me with a gun pointed at me. I felt sick to my stomach at this point. I put my head down, closed my eyes, and took a deep breath. I only saw a picture of my family from a vacation when I was about 10. I never understood why that picture. It was just what I envisioned, and it was so clear. The next thing I heard was from my front door slamming. I went downstairs and lit up a cigarette. About to call my girlfriend again when I saw headlights coming from a car coming towards me. And wouldn't you know it, it was a police car. Now I looked rough. He got out and asked me if everything was okay. I didn't say a word. He said, Your downstairs neighbors called because they heard some yelling and loud noises. I didn't know what to do or say. I was speechless like there was no way this could be happening right now. I told him some guys came to rob me but they left because they had the wrong house. He asked me exactly what happened. I told him they went to the kitchen and were looking for something in there, so that the attention wasn't in my room. As more cops showed up, they dusted the kitchen for fingerprints. Then I saw one head to my room. I thought they wouldn't find any weed because the guys took it all, and I was asked to come into my bedroom. The guy led me to my closet and pointed at the top of my safe. What is this? He asked. Earlier I had rolled a joint and a little bit fell out on the top. Now, this was 2009 in South Florida. Weed was looked at as very illegal. I told him I smoke every now and then, figuring if they thought I was being honest, they would look past it. He told me to sit on the couch. A few minutes later, I was told to stand up and put my hands behind my back. I realized I was being handcuffed. I thought back to when I was pulled over on that drive to Florida. I mean, at least I wouldn't have gotten beat up and robbed if they would have found the weed that night just to rest it. That was the start of a dark time in my life, and weed turned out to be the least of my worries. I'm happy to say I'm coming up on six years sober now. I have a beautiful family, and I consider myself the luckiest guy in the world. Hey swamp folk, thanks for listening to these stories. Remember, if you have an experience that you would like to share in the show, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net. Now, let's get back into these creepy and allegedly true home invasion horror stories. This story happened about six years ago and is true. This is a long one. I was about 19 years old and going through medical school, which was a very stressful time for me. I took some counseling but ended up in a hospital where I found that exercise helps with stress, especially walks and jogging outside. I lived in a pretty sketchy neighborhood in a quite run-down Ohio town. However, this did not keep me from venturing out during the afternoons to do a walk. Usually, my grandparents would also do these walks, and my grandfather is a veteran and carries a handgun, so there is some security there. On this day, I was stressed and skipped out on classes for that day, and decided to go on a walk when my grandparents asked me to join them. I also talked to a person on Tinder I had just matched with and told them about my walk. They were from the area and said they could meet me along my route near an old store, Fifteen minutes into my walk, I split from my grandparents under the pretense of meeting this woman in an old antique store. I got to the place, and they said they were there. I could not see anyone, so I asked where they were at. I can't see you. They responded, I can see you. I immediately dipped out of the area, thoroughly creeped out, but now I felt that I was alone, heading back through a sketchy area between downtown and my house. I noticed two kids, probably one being 17 and another I later found was 16, riding around on their bikes. They passed me by a few times, and on the third passing by, the younger one asked, ''Hey, do you smoke?'' I responded, ''No, thanks.'' He continued prodding me with questions like, ''Are you from here?'' to which I lied on every question, hoping to throw him off, but thinking back it made me look more vulnerable. Not long into the conversation, the young kid gets off his bike, and the other is standing in the distance behind him, also off his bike, hands in his pockets. The younger kid told me, I need your phone. I hesitated, but the kid put his hands in his pockets, which was an obvious sign he had something hidden. I complied, and the kid got on his bike. The older one pedaled away quickly. Feeling less threatened and pumped full of adrenaline, I grabbed him, threw him to the ground... He started running, but I couldn't catch up with him. I returned to the area the kid left his bike in. Having left his bike, I picked it up and started walking along with it to my house. This entire time, my house was in sight. The older kid moments later stepped up with a knife in plain sight, saying, I need you to give me that bike. I conceded and handed over the bike. I could sense the situation escalating, and I decided to leg it with my house being about 100 feet away. I reached my front door, frantically trying to open it. While a black car pulled into my driveway, it seems my grandparents were not back yet and the door was locked. I heard from the car, I thought he would have run a bit further. I had no idea where this car came from, but I think they may have been coaching these kids. I ran to my neighbors who let me in, where I called the police. The youngest kid was caught, but the others were not. Unfortunately, as I called out sick to class and the court day was on a class day, I had to flunk a class to attend the hearing which caused me to fail automatically. This wasn't the end, though. Later that week, my grandparents left the house to do errands, and I decided to sleep in, still having been stressed by the events earlier that week. I awoke having heard a loud banging. I live on the second floor, and no one came up except me, so the banging on my locked door startled me. I had my door bolted and locked. I looked out my window to my driveway to see a familiar black vehicle in the driveway. My grandparents were not home. Who's there? I yelled. No reply. Heavy footsteps, two pairs I thought I heard walking down my stairs. I barricaded myself in my windowless bathroom adjoining my room. I heard the car leave, not having seen the intruders. Still, I was petrified and didn't leave that room until my grandmother came pounding on my door, exclaiming that everything had been stolen, from the air conditioner to the guns in my grandfather's heavy safe. Later, one of the men was caught and my grandfather's coin collection was retrieved, but the guns and other valuables were long gone. The kid cried profusely in court and begged me to forgive him. I refused to reply and sat there after the testimony to the judge. All in all, I blamed the entire situation on the adults, who I presume set those kids up to do this, and then later invaded my home. I left out some details such as the police search afterward where my stepdad took me to look for the kids and he ended up hitting the young one off the bike with his car. That's how the young kid got caught. I feel a bit bad after that one. Hey Swamp Folk, sorry to interrupt these stories, but today's episode is sponsored by our good friends over at HelloFresh. HelloFresh delivers fresh quality products from the farm to your door in less than a week, so you can savor summer flavors right from your home. HelloFresh now has 30 dinner recipes to choose from every single week. That's the most choices of any meal kit. Now, me personally and many others in the swamp have been using HelloFresh for over two years now, and I can tell you this, I discover seasonal, summer recipes like cucumber salad, stuffed pita pockets, chicken sausage, stuffed peppers, Tuscan spiced shrimp, and so much more on a weekly basis that it has expanded my palate outside of those good old McDonald's chicken nuggies. So, what are you waiting for? Join me and many others in the swamp today. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Swamped16 and use code Swamped16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. Once again, go to HelloFresh.com slash Swamped16 and use code Swamped16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. Come find out why it's America's number one meal kit. The last thing you would ever expect to happen in a small or rural town in the middle of nowhere is a gruesome quadruple homicide. By all accounts, Ina, Illinois is a quiet, sleepy town that did not have much more than a general store, a bank, a gas station, a post office, or a firehouse. This case caught my eye. I would assume it was because I came from a small town with roughly only 900 people in it. These small town cases hit home for me. This case is from the 80s, 1987 to be exact. It has many strange and brutal details and is not for the easily squeamish. This is the unsolved story of the Dardeen family murders. Before we get into the inevitable, sad, and tragic story of the Dardeen family, let's take a few moments to get acquainted with them. The Dardeen family consisted of Russell Keith Dardeen, his wife Ruby Elaine Dardine, who was pregnant then, and their two-year-old son Peter Dardine. Russell and Ruby went by their middle names, so I will refer to them as Keith and Elaine throughout the video. By all accounts, it seemed that the Dardine family was well-liked, and no one who knew the family had anything wrong to say. The family lived in a trailer home in the woods close to Keith's job at the water treatment facility. Elaine worked at a local office supply store in Mount Vernon. The Dardines were very active in their local church. Keith and Elaine were part of the musical ensemble in the church. Keith sang lead vocals and Elaine played the piano. They were already pinching pennies to save money for Peter's college fund and, as I mentioned earlier, were expecting another baby very soon. In 1987, the Dardeen family was expecting their second child and wanted to move to a better area to raise their family. Not to mention, they needed an extra bedroom for the baby. To put the cherry on top, there had been around 15 homicides in Jefferson County alone in the previous two years they had been living there. Let's put that into perspective quickly. Only about 38,000 people live in Jefferson County, Illinois. So obviously, they decided to put their mobile home up for sale. They had hoped to find a home with a bit more space up in Mount Carmel. This had been the area Keith had grown up in. Due to the violent happenings around them, Keith had become increasingly more protective and paranoid about their safety. He was so on edge that when a young woman knocked on their door asking to make a phone call one night, he would not let her in and told her to go away. Some may say this is paranoia but I would say that you can never be too safe. The family would never get the chance to move to a safer area, though. It was November 18th, 1987, and Keith had not shown up for work. This is very out of character for a reliable, dedicated employee like Keith. Keith's boss was instantly concerned and made a call to his home but got no answer. Keith's supervisor would call Keith's parents, who both claimed to have not seen or heard anything from him. By nightfall, the police had been dispatched to the Dardeen home to check on them. Keith's father, Don Dardeen, met with the police to give him the keys to the mobile home. Inside, police found a scene so horrific and so sick that it would forever change everyone involved. First, police found Elaine and Peter Dardine dead. They had been beaten to death brutally and killed with a baseball bat Keith had bought for Peter earlier that year. Elaine had been beaten so severely that she had given birth, and yes, the killer was so gruesome he had beaten the newborn. Whoever had done this had tied up Elaine with duct tape and gagged her. The killer had cleaned up the area, showing they had no worries about being in a rush to leave the scene. The only person not found was Keith Dardine. Now the police initially thought he had murdered his own family and was now on the run. But these suspicions were short-lived as Keith's body was found in a field not far from the family's home. He had been shot three times, and even more gruesomely, his manhood had been severed. Keith's car was found parked outside the local police station in a nearby town called Benton, which shows how bold this killer really was. For those interested, Keith drove a red 1981 Plymouth. From the images I could find, it's a hatchback-style car. The car was parked just 10 miles from the Dardine family home. The blood found in the vehicle, which is assumed to be Keith's, shows it may have been the site of his murder and mutilation. The case starts to get even stranger. Elaine and Peter were estimated to have been dead for roughly 12 hours before they were found. Keith had likely been dead for closer to 24 to 36 hours before he was discovered. This detail has made police question whether this was the work of one killer, or or multiple officials were having a tough time putting together a motive there was no sign of forced entry as the back door had been left open robbery did not seem to be the motive either as cash and valuables were easily accessible but left untouched no SA was determined to have been done to Elaine which rules out that aspect this crime seems way too brutal and violent for it to not be something personal I am not the only one with this mindset. The Franklin County coroner who did the autopsy on the bodies does not believe this was a random act of violence. He said, I believe it was a very personal, deliberate thing. Police have speculated this could potentially be a crime of mistaken identity. Of course, many theories exist on what happened to the Dardine family. Keith's mother said she believes someone tried to force Keith into selling drugs and when he refused, he got mutilated. I find this a bit hard to believe simply due to the sheer amount of violence involved in the crime. If he were simply shot, then that theory would make more sense to me. That's not to say it didn't happen that way though. Keith's mother also had an idea that someone may have had the hots for Elaine, and when she did not accept their advances they took their rage out on the family. This could be plausible, but wouldn't you think SA would occur? Maybe not. But it does make sense and could be a possible answer. The next theory will make many roll their eyes and potentially even click away. But this theory has some semblance of logic. Rumors ran wild among locals that the unborn baby Elaine had had been ripped from her womb. This combined with the mutilation of Keith's man parts sent the locals in a frenzy, thinking satanic ritual killings were being carried out in their neighborhoods. The 80s were the absolute height of the satanic panic hysteria, which didn't help officials move this case forward. As unfortunate as it may be to admit, these rumors, even though likely untrue, did impact the investigation in some sort of way. Whether it was directly or indirectly, it did cause the investigation to be muddied, in a sense. The last theory I wanted to touch on is the serial killer theory. I am unsure where this was suggested or who, but there was a string of suspected serial killings in the area. A regional serial killer was a solid idea then, and still could make the pieces to this puzzle make a bit more sense. Despite a long-standing investigation from Illinois State Police and Jefferson County Police, roughly 30 detectives working full-time, including FBI involvement, nothing outside of a few suggestions and potential profiles came of this. The FBI stated this crime defied their analytic methods and finding a motive was nearly impossible. It is safe to say that in a town as small as Ina, Illinois, the locals were all on edge and paranoid after all of these murders. A local Ina resident told the local coroner, who also doubled as a local doctor, that he lost 14 pounds due to the stress of living next door to the Dardine family home. The Dardine family's landlord even stayed up at night reading books to stay awake out of fear. Nobody knew why the deaths were happening, which made everyone uneasy and made them all feel like a target. This case was sadly, like many others, become a cold case. Now, this doesn't mean it was forgotten, though. Joanne Dardine has worked tirelessly to keep a light on this case. Throughout the 1990s, Joanne would call the single detectives still working on the case. She would give them potential leads and ask if they had any new information. She also acquired more than 3,000 signatures from the area to get the Oprah show to share their family's case on the show. But it was declined due to the violent nature of the crime. She did eventually get the case shared on America's Most Wanted after they initially decided not to air the case. For some reason, they did decide to air it in 1998. Sadly, nothing would really come from this, though. No new leads or tips. The story doesn't quite end there, though. In 2000, Serial killer Tommy Lynn Sells, arrested for cutting two girls' throats in Texas, started to confess to many other unsolved murders across the country. Sells claimed he was a carney who train-hopped across the country. He claimed to have killed the Dardine family after Keith had invited him over for dinner, after meeting him at the pool hall or a truck stop. He claims Keith tried to get him to partake in a threesome with his wife. This story is highly doubted by many, though. The Dardeen family were extremely religious, as we mentioned before. Keith was very cautious. Remember how Keith declined a young girl to come into their home and use their phone? Why would he let a 22-year-old man in? This was a common question from locals at the time. Even though Tommy Lynn's cells would confess to upwards of 70 killings, he was only convicted of 22. Officials were convinced he committed those 22, but sadly the Dardine family was not included in that list. It would be doubtful Tommy Lynn Cells killed the Dardine family, but not impossible I guess. As of now, the complex and disturbing case of the Dardine family murders remains unsolved. This case is one of the heaviest and downright violent I have ever investigated. Every day you find an issue so disturbing and violent but has no motive and no real viable suspect. If you have any information or tips on what could have happened all those years ago to the Dardeen family, please contact the Jefferson County Police. I would also love to know in the comments down below your theories on this case as well. Join the conversation. I get a few different vibes from this case. I almost feel like this was an act of jealousy maybe. I don't know. It's hard to judge this crime based on the little context we are given. Hey swamp folk, thanks for listening to these true crime horror stories. Be sure to hit that like button if you haven't, and subscribe if you're new. Now let's get back into these downright strange and tragic cases. There's nothing worse than losing a loved one. But what if you had no information about what happened to them? Well. The loved ones of Daniel Reeves would tragically face this reality in May of 2008. Daniel Reeves and his girlfriend Sarah were enjoying a night together in Madison, Indiana. It was May 3rd, 2008 and the couple enjoyed a nice date night watching a movie. They were at Sarah's house at the time. The couple went to bed and sometime around 4am Sarah woke up. She noticed Daniel was no longer there and she had received a text from Daniel saying nothing more than I love you. She tried to call him, but he was not answering his phone. This would be the last time anyone would ever hear from Daniel Reeve. Thus, the mystery of what happened to him begins. Before I go any further, I should mention Daniel was last seen wearing a white or light blue t-shirt, brown steel-toed sneakers, tan shorts, and potentially a black leather jacket. Daniel had no known medical issues besides social anxiety, which was very mild, as claimed by his parents. He has dark brown hair and blue eyes. He is 5'11 and weighs about 145 pounds. About a week after being reported missing, Daniel's 1999 Chrysler Sebring convertible was located on Green Hill Drive, very close to Clifty Falls State Park. This park is a hiker's heaven. Many college students and residents often use these trails in the fall and spring months. Daniel had much experience in the area as he was raised there. It is reported that he had even hiked in this area in the past. The real question is, though, why would Daniel Reeves decide to go for a hike at 4am? At the time it would have been around 42 degrees outside. Since Daniel was last seen wearing shorts, this would surely not be the ideal hiking setup. When officials found the car, they reported it was unlocked, which Daniel's family thought was strange as he always locked his car, even in the driveway of his own home. Daniel's wallet, including all of his credit cards and IDs, however, and Daniel's phone and keys were nowhere to be found. The Indiana State Police searched the car as well as they could and claimed to have seen nothing of worth. A search was conducted in the Clifty Falls State Park on May 10, 2008. Clifty Falls is a full park of railroad tunnels, caves, and waterfalls. This can surely make hiking the garden a real challenge at some points. The park is a relatively small one, only roughly two square miles. Nothing was ever found that could be tied to Daniel or his disappearance. Cell phone records show he has never used his phone since that last text to Sarah. The question of what happened to Daniel Reeves remains a mystery. Before I end this look at the tragic disappearance of Daniel Reeves, I'd like to take a few minutes to go over some speculation and theories I found while looking into this case. First, I'd like to say I stumbled upon this case on Reddit from a write-up by a user named By A Freeway I Confess. This user's post shared Daniel's Charlie Project profile and his subject. I found this case interesting as it seemed that this may have been a potential suicide. The details seemed to lead in that direction, but I, of course, never want to be the insensitive guy and throw out wild accusations like that with no proof. While I could not find much about this from the archives online, I found many theories on forum posts. Many of these theories focus on mental health. After digging, I found a section where Daniel's parents claim he had no medical or mental problems outside of slight social anxiety. A few users on this forum pointed out that parents aren't usually fully informed about their children's mental health, especially when they move out and start their own lives. Another theory mentions that it is widespread to park further away from the entrances like Daniel did, as the park is small and limited to trails. Foot traffic off the beaten path would be scarce to none. These off-the-beaten-path trails also take you into extreme terrain that could easily cause death even for the most experienced hikers. Ultimately, this story may never be solved, which ultimately makes me super sad. I only wish that I could know what led to those final moments in Daniel's life that made him decide to take this hike. This case reminds me a lot of the story of John Glasgow who disappeared mysteriously in 2008 under similar circumstances. John's skeleton was eventually found, but sadly nothing will ever be understood of how he died. What do you think of this case? With the tiniest details shared, it feels like a suicide story. This is speculation though, so please be respectful in the comments. If anyone struggles with mental health and needs someone to speak to, the suicide prevention hotline is open 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. You can call them at 1-800-273-TALK. Valentine's Day is one of those minor, yet busier holidays that many lovers across the globe partake in every single year. I know that I love showering my loved ones with gifts on this day to show them how much I care. It seems not everyone is as festive as us. Some people have more nefarious and sinister intentions. This story is a tragic and unsolved cold case from the late 1980s in the rural south. This is the Jenkins County Jane Doe story. To begin with, we need to go back to 1988 in the small town of Millen, Georgia. A man and his girlfriend were scouring the area for cans and bottles for money. Not my ideal way to spend Valentine's Day, but you do what you gotta do. While the man's girlfriend waited in the car, he jumped into a dumpster to find some more cans. Before we go any further, I must mention, in the days before this event, a foul odor had been reported around the area. No one had seemingly thought much about it at the time, though, while searching around, he found the source of this wretched smell. This man discovered a duffel bag. He opened the bag with his pocket knife and instantly regretted it. He had made a genuinely gruesome discovery. There were body parts wrapped in plastic stuffed into the duffel bag. The body parts were severely decomposed at this point. At first, the man was in shock and didn't know what to do with this find. For some reason, his first reaction was to get a friend to look at the contents to confirm that this was indeed a bag of body parts. This was precisely what it was, though a dismembered, decomposed woman's body. But who was this poor woman? This is the true ongoing mystery. Around 4.45 that same day, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, aka the GBI, and the local police were on the scene. Due to Millen being such a small town, the local coroner didn't have the experience needed for this crime scene. Since the local facilities were not equipped for this, the autopsy was conducted in Atlanta by a GBI coroner. It was reported that the woman had been in the dumpster since Friday the 12th, two days before she was discovered on Valentine's Day. But reports show she had been dead for at least four to seven days before that. There were no apparent signs of injury, but her feet had been bound. Many other tests were run on Jane Doe she returned negative for any drugs or seminal evidence, which would have been left behind if an assault occurred. Unfortunately, no cause of death could be 100% determined, which makes profiling the killer that much harder. Rumors do speculate it could have been due to some sort of asphyxiation. No matter how she died, she is considered a murder victim. Since Jane Doe's remains were in such bad shape, the post-mortem photos were not released. At least i could not find them that is there are two publicly available reconstruction photos of jane doe though this first sketch was made up by gbi forensic artist marla lawson in 1988. it was admitted not to be as detailed as the composite which was made later the composite shows what most likely jane doe would have looked like she was estimated to be somewhere between the ages of 16 to 25 she was roughly five foot four to five foot five in height, and probably weighed around one hundred and thirty-five to one hundred and forty-five pounds. She was described as having a slim build. She has long, thick brown or black hair. There is a rather large dispute in her eye color. Multiple sources report it listed as brown, and others have it listed as unknown. Her dental records show she had good teeth. Her upper teeth were somewhat crooked and she had recently had a lower wisdom tooth removed not too long before she was killed. The last detail I could find is that Jane Doe's legs were freshly shaven. Another detail that has been up for speculation and confusion is Jane Doe's race and ethnicity has not been identified. This may seem trivial, but knowing a victim's race and ethnicity can reveal much information about the culprit. Media rumors speculate that she was Asian with the possibility of being mixed. Though locals disputed that fact and assumed that she was in fact Latina or Native American, Marla Lawson, the GBI forensic artist who created the reconstruction of Jane Doe based on the post-mortem pictures, thought she was of Asian or white descent. The stalemate in conflicting details could be a real monkey wrench in the progression of this investigation. Inside the duffel bag, officials found a pillow, bedspread sheets and a towel alongside the body parts. The pillow and quilt seem to be from the same matching set. They both have the same rose design. The bedsheet reportedly had no unique markings on them. The towel had printed butterfly designs on it. The bedding was eventually linked to a Korean manufacturer. Officials aren't sure, but they think these items could have been Jane Doe's property. Now, I did find more details on this case while I was digging around online. I studied deeper into Millen, Georgia and the surrounding areas specifically in 1988 when this crime occurred. For some context, Millen is a tiny town. Even today, the city barely hosts 3,100 residents. In the 80s, the town only boasted a few hundred more residents sitting along 3,800 in its prime. The town of Millen at the time had most of its population made up of African American families. Asian American families were a tiny minority in Millen at the time. After looking at a historical table of the town's population, you can see the Asian American population was only about 0.17% of the population. If we look at the Native American population, it was even less at only 0.06% of the people that lived in Millen. So if Jane Doe came from any of those racial backgrounds, a quick look into the resident at the time could find out very quickly who fit those backgrounds and could very well help determine who this girl is. Speculation that does argue against this point, though, is that due to the demographics of the area and the fact that the undocumented migrant workers who came through there seasonally is suspected that Jane Doe may not even been from the local area at all, it is common for serial offenders to abduct their victims and drop their bodies off in unrelated locations to confuse investigators. Let's be a bit more specific. The dumpster Jane Doe was found in was located off Kaiser Road and Old Perkins Road. Though the actual dumpster was taken as evidence, the area has been cleared now to enlarge the road. There are endless speculations on who, where, and why Jane Doe was killed. Some think she could have been a part of the ever-growing human trafficking epidemic. This was particularly bad at the time, especially for Asian immigrant women who were often vulnerable and easily manipulated at the time. While reading write-ups on this case, I stumbled upon a Reddit post that mentioned that in Georgia at the time, during this time that this was all happening, these women came from various nationalities. Many were Asian, and exceptionally high number of them originally came from China. It has been suggested that Jane Doe was a victim of human trafficking and could have worked in the many illegal massage parlors and spas, which were merely a front for brothels and human trafficking. Some more exciting details noted at the time is that the man who initially found Jane Doe mentioned he saw a small brown car parked nearby. When he returned with his friend, he noted that the car was gone. I was also able to find some rumblings of an additional report that this alleged small brown car was also seen by some children who were playing nearby. During the interview, the local police were told some interesting information from these two children. They said that they had been playing near the dumpster when they heard somebody crying. They said it was mumbled, but it still sounded like, My baby! My baby! At around the same time, they claim a car matching the description of the small brown vehicle pulled up to the dumpster. They described a man and a woman who both looked to be in their 50s. They got out of the car and proceeded to throw something away. On top of these developments, When police further searched the dumpster, they found a half-full gas can. It's not apparent if they think this is related, but I figured I'd throw it in there anyways as well. We don't have too much to go off of. It is speculated online that the killer probably planned to burn the body. When Jane Doe was discovered, many leads came in from the public, but all of them turned into dead ends almost as quickly as they had come in. Now before I wrap this case up and open the discussion in the comments with you guys, there are a few leads in this case. Now, I know earlier the only known witnesses to this event said they saw an older couple dropping something off in a car, as the one reported, but the most significant lead involved a 23-year-old man named Johnny Young. Johnny was a Milan native but lived in New Jersey at the time. Johnny was investigated after his friend called the police Alluding that they should talk to Johnny about that murder. Even more interesting, Johnny’s uncle claimed to have seen him with a Puerto Rican woman who may have even matched Jane Doe's description. Here's where things get even more questionable. Johnny’s uncle claims his nephew was involved with true drug. Johnny’s uncle claims his nephew was involved with two drug smugglers. One of these smugglers was dating this unidentified female. Johnny had run away with both the smuggler's money and the girl. Johnny did admit to knowing one of the smugglers, but not the other one, and he also stated that he did not know a Puerto Rican girl. The GBI could not find substantial evidence that Young had either been seen with such a woman or that she even existed. It would later come out that Johnny and his uncle had a strained relationship. This may have influenced the uncle to say some out-of-hand statements. This sounds like it would end here, but it doesn't. In the summer of 1991, Deputy Campbell of the Jenkins County Sheriff's Office received a phone call from an anonymous caller in New Jersey. This caller claimed that they know who killed the Jenkins County Jane Doe. The caller referred to Deputy Campbell by his first name and asked, Do you remember that girl? And said that he was tired of running. This caller claimed he had tried to turn himself into the New Jersey police but they had not believed him. The caller told Deputy Campbell to come pick him up and hung up the phone. Deputy Campbell has never been able to contact the caller again, but the family believes it was Johnny Young who called him that day. They eventually tracked Johnny down and questioned him about the phone call. He denied that he had ever made the call and relayed the same story as the first interview. But he did add in some new details, like how his uncle and another man had shown him the dumpster at some point before Jane Doe had been found. The GBI re-interviewed Johnny's family and friends, but this also ended up just as a dead end. Since this initial lead though, no new information has been developed in this case. The only suspect we had died in 2006. Crow Fields Funeral Home in Millen cremated Jane Doe's body. It is unclear why they did this as murder victims are usually not burned, but seeing as Millen is a small town, it is not unfathomable that something like this would happen, even though the GBI did attempt to retrieve unusable DNA from the bedding found with her remains. On the brighter side, her dental records and fingerprint could be used to help identify her one day. Many searches to find a match have been unsuccessful thus far. And that is where the story of the Jenkins County Jane Doe ends, at least for now. My name is Lynette, and I work with the Park Rangers in Washington State. My story takes place about a decade ago and doesn't involve anything supernatural or weird. No, it involves a very human element. I've been doing my job for 13 years and have yet to be scared before or since this has happened. It was a Monday afternoon, and I was getting ready to finish my shift for the day. As I was cleaning up and ensuring there was nothing that needed fixing in the coming days, I heard loud shouting a little ways off to my west. As I listened more intensely, it was clear two males were arguing with another, which was a severe argument. I heard cussing and then a loud screaming. I rushed toward the sound without thinking. I have a very caring heart and want to ensure things are okay. That said, I made a mistake at that moment. I didn't call for backup or call the cops as I should have right then and there. I was just so worried about the person I heard, and I got caught up in the moment. As I ran toward the screaming, I heard someone shouting, Stop it, man! I'm sorry! Stop it! I'll never forget those words. And when I came over, what I saw made me scream as I went to a sliding stop. This was also a huge mistake. I probably should have been quieter, but the shock of what I saw made me scream. A man was bleeding out on the ground, and another man was standing over this man with a bloody knife in his hand, still stabbing the seemingly lifeless man. I panicked, and that's all it took for the other man to turn around, see me, and rush me. I remember hearing him yell, Come here. I froze, and he was on top of me immediately. He had the knife to my throat and told me to give him my radio. He said if I tried anything, he'd gut me right then and there, just like he did that other guy. I was crying as I gave up my radio and stared at this man in the eyes. He looked utterly uncaring about anything he had just done. I had seen the evidence only a few feet away that he didn't care and would happily kill me, so I asked him what he wanted. He eyed me and gave me the most unnerving smirk I have ever seen someone give me in my lifetime. He grabbed me by the hair a moment later and threw me next to the other man. At this moment, I could still see he was still alive, but barely. I still remember his sputtered breathing as he choked on his blood, and I remember being sure I would die here at that moment. The man grabbed me from behind and tied my hands behind my back as I cried and begged him to stop. I remember him feeling my waist and thinking he was about to do something horrible to me before realizing he was merely checking me for any weapons or anything I could use. At first... This brought a subtle and strange form of relief until I realized he might just be getting ready to kill me. I mean, I'd seen what he had just done to the man dying in front of me, so it was unlikely he would let me live as well. I began sobbing, at which point the man punched me in the back of the head and told me if he heard me speak without permission one more time, he would end my life right there. Silently, I began to pray to God. I wasn't even religious, but I remember begging God internally to help me somehow. I cried but tried my best to keep quiet. The man reached into my pockets and grabbed my wallet before pushing my face into the blood-soaked chest of the now dead man. He screamed at me to not move and began laughing as he read my address. He took pictures of my family and said if I said a single word about this he would find me and make me watch as he murdered my family before killing me. There was no hint of regret in his voice for what he had just done, and I heard him run off before long. I remember waiting until I was positive. He was gone before rolling over and crying my eyes out i couldn't control my sobbing and i began screaming this was several minutes after the man had left after what seemed like forever i heard my supervisor's voice coming over he pulled out a knife cut me free and immediately held me while asking me what happened i kept crying and wanted to say what happened but couldn't get the words out so he got me a towel and had me sit down by the tree a bit away from the body of the man who had been murdered I had another coworker who watched over me while he called the cops. Much of this part was a blur, to be honest. When you experience extreme trauma, your brain destroys your memory for a time. I remember eventually calming down enough to explain what happened to another officer. She was very kind, and I remember telling her what had happened. When I say I remember telling her what happened, I don't entirely remember, but I can see myself talking to her but almost like being out of body. The conversation is muted. I only say this to explain the effects of severe trauma on the brain as I don't believe enough people take that sort of thing seriously or understand what it can do to someone. I know I explained it, though, as I still talk to the officer who helped me today. I required extensive leave, therapy, and much more after all this happened. But I did eventually come out on the other side of this, somewhat sane. I still have nightmares and evil PTSD about this event, but I am well enough to work and now we have a policy of being in pairs to prevent something like this from happening again. I remember the dying man's body and watching him struggle to breathe. I never fully got over that. I should also say that they did catch the man responsible shortly after he left the scene. I still thank God every day that I'm okay. Gentlemen, all men strive for gold in their life, right? Gold medals, gold watches, gold everything. However, there is a certain type of man who goes the extra mile. He walks with the confidence of an eagle and giggles in the face of danger. He's a big, hairless, winning machine, and when he unzips his pants, he sees... Platinum? That's right, Manscaped would like to introduce to you their best and biggest ultimate hygiene bundle yet, the Platinum Package 4.0. Manscaped is the leader in the below-waist grooming area, now trust them with the whole shebang. Join the 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped, including those of us here in the swamp. By going to Manscaped.com for 20% off free shipping with the code SWAMPED. Manscaped's brand new Platinum Package 4.0 is the biggest bundle they've ever offered, giving you a bulk discount on Manscaped's top products. Now personally, I've been using Manscaped for quite a long time, and in addition to shaving, you can now completely upgrade your shower routine with the Ultra Premium Body Wash and Ultra Premium 2-in-1 Shampoo Conditioner. You'll have your skin and hair feeling hydrated and smelling fresh for the ladies. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code swamped at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com using code swamped. It's time you enjoyed the finer things in life and get yourself a platinum package for your platinum package. I want to share a story about the park that I work in. It's in Washington and is a peaceful place overall. That said, there are some strange things afoot there. I've been a park ranger for 27 years. During that time, I've had one thing that I find unsettling. You can call me Debbie, as most people call me anyway. I wanted to share a story about the strange sounds coming from the park I work at. These sounds happen day and night, and I'm not the only person that has experienced them. There doesn't seem to be any discernible pattern to the sounds, and it sounds almost like chanting or even singing sometimes. I find these sounds unsettling because of what happens shortly after. Something always turns up dead. It's always been animals, although there has been the occasion or two where it's sometimes people usually related to health issues is the excuse the park will give, but I think there's something different, because every time these chants or singing things start, something turns up dead eventually. The experience I will discuss involves a Monday morning. I know, Mondays, am I right? And this was the first time I had heard the chanting for myself. I had heard stories previously, but I had never experienced it for myself prior. I was doing my morning rounds, when I suddenly heard this cold singing. In some ways, it was relaxing. But there was more of a hint of evil to it this time. I'm not saying the chanting itself is evil. There's that dread in the air when you hear it, though. It's all alluring, but terrifying, all at the same time. Anyway, I hear this low sound. At first, it is like chanting, and as time goes on, it becomes more audible. I notice it sounds almost like a harmonic singing. I'm a bit perplexed and begin to look around. No one appears to be in sight, so I continue picking up trash and checking the area, not thinking too hard about it. Next thing I know, it becomes very audible. It's like when you're listening to music on your iPod or your phone or something. So there I am, looking around suspiciously, as no one is about to get the drop on old Debbie, when suddenly... I see something sickening. I see a dog laying on the ground. I head over and realize quickly that this thing has been ripped open. The dog is no longer alive, and the kill looked fresh. It also smelled fresh enough that I had to go elsewhere and relieve myself of the contents of my breakfast that morning. I called my supervisor and informed them of what I found. They had asked if I needed anything, or if I needed any help cleaning it up, and I told them, of course, yes, right now. It probably didn't take long for someone to get there, but it felt like forever, and I kept my distance during that time. One of the guys I was working with at the time, Kyle, showed up with his little disposal kit and walked over and checked it out. It didn't seem to face him too much, and I began questioning if I really knew him at that moment. He asked if I saw what had killed the dog, as it was all over the place. I told him no, I had not, and I wasn't about to go looking. Then he cleaned everything up and buried the poor thing. I can't even handle the sight of everything, and Kyle cleaned it all up, and it was like a regular Monday to them. After cleanup, he asked if I would heard anything weird prior, and I explained to him, yes, the strange chanting and singing everyone goes on about. I elaborated and told him, I saw nothing kill the dog though. Now, that's the only time I've been witness to the immediate death of something after this weird chanting or whatever it is occurs. Kyle and many others working there have happened upon other deaths and as I said before, it's like a normal Monday for them. So, most of the time, it's covered up with normal, human, explainable things, like people choking on food or heart attacks, but I'm not so sure. All that said, I still do work at this park, and the chanting and singing isn't as frequent as frequent as it used to be. It was a bit unsettling to hear, or even hear of. Has anyone around the Washington area had anything similar happen to them? I'd be very curious to know. I've been working as a park ranger for roughly 17 years. In all that time, I've had a few experiences I would deem strange and scary. The one I will share with you today is a little bit of both, mostly terrifying for me personally. You can call me Trent, by the way. I believe this was 2009. My team and I were working to clean the area and prepare it for the summer camping season here in Colorado. Now, it's a national park, so there's a ton that we have to do. But we like to go around and do cleanup in our area, as you have to do because people don't bother, honestly. And quite honestly, it's one of those things that gets on my nerves. It isn't hard to clean up your trash, but anyway, that's a different tangent. It was getting late, and I volunteered to stay after that evening to make sure all the cleanup was done. The idea for me at least was to get as much done as possible while we still had light. It being summer soon, we had plenty of light compared to fall and winter when it gets dark earlier. It wasn't long before everyone was clocking out, and I told them all goodbye, and I'd see them on Monday. None of my crew worked with me on my weekend shifts, though we did have a few within the department itself who did. An hour goes by and then two, and before I know it I'm so wrapped up in my task, and I look up and I realize I'm losing daylight. Thinking little of this, I put myself in another gear and tried to get more done. In my mind, I figured I'd just be better prepared and leave less to do Monday. Also, I take great pride in my work so I do everything I can no matter how large or small the task. It's a large part of what has led to the promotion I've been given, and it is something I still do to this day. It is not long before I realize the sun is about to set completely. I stop my work, pull out my flashlight, and prepare to haul my last garbage bag back to the station and drop it in the dumpster. As I'm wrapping things up, I hear a large growling sound. I immediately grab my bear spray as I recognize the sound I'm listening to. Turning around slowly, I see much that leaves me in shock and dread. It looks to be a black bear, but the problem is it is much more significant than any black bear I have ever seen or even known to exist. This thing has a large scar across its left eye and is staring at me, baring its teeth. Normally, I'd do something to make the bear think I'm more extensive and more significant than I actually am but no amount of posturing will save me from this monstrosity. This thing looked to be 12 to 13 feet tall on all fours. I didn't believe my eyes at first, but there was no denying. The thing stood in the air, and I about pissed myself in fear. I wanted to run, but I knew running would only encourage it to give chase. I didn't exactly feel safe standing there, though, so I kept my eyes on this thing as I slowly backed away. The thing was, I had found myself far away from the trails and was quite a bit off the beaten track from the station. Usually, this isn't an issue as you don't normally run into a bear the size of a mountain on your travels around this area. But today, this was not the case. I'm sitting there thinking about what my next move might be, all the while I'm slowly backing away. I know it isn't wise to stare this thing down, but there was no other way I was going to turn my back on this bear and run or any other way to escape. I have my hand on my mace, and the other hand is holding on to the garbage. After an eternity, I am finally out of the sight of the bear. It appears to have just stared at me, but I'm worried that it was attracted to me because of the smell of the garbage. I'm sure it's nothing a bear would think twice about if it was hungry enough, and if I were the size of this thing, I'd be hungry all the time. After several minutes of watching the horizon and seeing nothing, I turn and start hauling my butt as fast as I can back towards the station. It is still quite a way off, but I figure if I keep moving, I'll get there in no time. While running, I suddenly hear a large stomping sound behind me. Looking back, it's the bear and it's coming in fast. I freak out and throw the trash bag I have off in a different direction. My hope was that it would distract it, just long enough for me to get away. But unfortunately, it ignored it entirely and kept coming for me. I am now forced to turn and stand my ground as there is no other way out of this. There is no way I am going to outrun this thing. I stop, pull the bear mace off my belt and prep to spray the hell out of this thing. It confronts me and we meet eye to eye again. It's only a few feet from me now and to my shock it seems very aware of what I am ready to do. The look that this bear made it seemed like it was calculating its next move. I've seen a lot of bears and usually they'll scare off without too much trouble or even mind their own business entirely. This one though? The look on its face just said that it was hunting, and I was on the menu. It seemed disturbingly intelligent, and as it stepped forward, I reacted in shock and I sprayed it in the face with the mace. The bear reeled back. I ran for my garbage bag, though looking back I'm not sure why I did that, and I continued my sprint toward the station's direction. I heard the terrifying roar I've listened to throughout my life, followed by an extensive but all too familiar stopping sound. I'm feeling my legs begin to give away from fear and I tell myself, if you give out now, you're dead. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. So I gain the mental fortitude to keep pushing through and steady as I run. As I'm getting closer to the cabin, I feel the thing running up from behind me. I freak out and spin to see wherever it's at tripping as I do so, falling on my butt. The thing had taken a swipe and left a deep claw mark in the tree where my head was only seconds before. I pray and spray the bear yet again. It thrashes about blindly, and during the thrashing and my struggle to get up, it hits my can of spray and dislodges it from my grip. It does this with enough force for my hand to fly back and hit the tree. I see blood and feel pain as my hand smacks the tree. Unsure if I've broken my right hand, I use my left hand to stand up, and yet again, for reasons I'll never be sure of, perhaps its shock and some semblance of normalcy, I grab the trash bag with my left hand and turn and continue sprinting. The bear is roaring behind me, but it doesn't appear to give pursuit. It isn't long before I reach the main trail and can see the cabin in the distance. Terrified, I keep running. Soon enough, there is another roar. I am not ashamed to admit I peed myself a bit, followed by the familiar stomping of this bear. I freak out and keep telling myself, don't look back, don't look back, don't look back. I run with all the power and speed I can muster and have left to give, and I make it to the station. I open the door and slam it shut, locking it behind me. As I do, I feel the door's foundation shake as the bear seems to be banging against it. I barricade the door with some tables and whatever I can muster to move, and I immediately use the phone to call 911. The dispatcher answers and I'm trying to explain where I am and my situation, and the dispatcher reassures me help is on the way. It doesn't take the police more than 5 minutes to arrive, but to me it felt like 5 hours. By the time they knock, I leap up in shock and terror at the sound. It is then that I remove the tables and slowly open the door. I am shaking as I try to explain the entire situation, and I feel tears involuntarily begin to fall down my face. Eventually, an officer sits with me, as does the sheriff, and then they try to take the time to calm me down. They ask if I need any medical attention, and I tell them no. They insisted anyway as they seem to see that I'm in shock, and I don't really feel much of the pain quite yet. I don't remember much of that part, but that's why they tell me that I need to go to a hospital. As I left the station, I remember looking back at the door and seeing a significant claw mark on our door. Now, I haven't seen this bear since that day. He hasn't turned up, and as far as I know, no one has been attacked by it. All that said, this is a situation that will stay with me for a lifetime. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true disturbing horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. If you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to hit that like button as it helps me out a ton. The more likes this episode gets, the more YouTube promotes it in the algorithm and that helps the swamp grow. If you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple podcasts, please be sure to give this a five star rating over there as it helps me out a ton. If you're new to the swamp, why not join us? Hit that subscribe button and turn on notifications to never miss a new episode as I upload them nearly every single day And all things natural and supernatural. If you have a story you'd like to share in a future episode of the show, be sure to send in your story at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I would love to share your story with everyone here in The Swamp. It's stories like yours that truly help keep this show going on a daily basis. If you'd like to support The Swamp outside of all of that, Come join me over on Twitch. I play horror games multiple times a week over there. Currently, we're playing The Quarry. If you're interested, you can find a link to follow me over there in the description. You can also find links to join me over on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to keep up with behind-the-scenes stuff from the swamp. And I'll see you all soon with another creepy episode.